Well, beloved, what we have just sung about is our hope that our lives are hidden in Christ and that we are covered in his blood and his righteousness. He is the reason that we're here. We're not here because of anything that we have done or ever could do. We're here because of what Christ alone has already accomplished in our place. So let's go to the Lord now in prayer as we're going to look to his word. We need his help, and he's faithful to give it. So let's ask him for it. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we come to you in need, not trusting in ourselves in any way. And at the same time, we come to you hopeful and expectant that you will minister to us yet again this morning through the preaching of your word. We pray for all of us that you would minister to us by your spirit, that you would give us eyes to see the truth and ears to hear it and hearts that would receive the truth and love it. We pray that as a result of our time in your word this morning, that we would despair of any hope of our own righteousness. We pray that we would have no desire whatsoever to cling to the law for our standing before you. We pray that our faith in Christ would be confirmed and strengthened and stirred this morning. We pray for you to come and do these things in Jesus' name, amen. Well, friends, we are back this morning in Paul's letter to the Romans. I will go ahead and invite you to open your Bibles to the book of Romans. We're going to be spending time today on just a couple of verses, very significant verses, though, in this letter. We're going to be looking pointedly at Romans 3, 21, and the first part of verse 22. But what I want to do by way of introduction is to pull us into the letter and pull us into the argument that Paul has been making for the better part of three chapters now. For us to best understand and for verse 21 and verse 22 to hit us the way that they should, we need to track with Paul's argument that led him to these verses. So if you have your Bibles with you, open them up to Romans 1. And track with me for just the next few moments as we prepare our hearts and minds for the hearing of the good news. So Paul greeted the saints in Rome. He led off by saying that he's an apostle set apart for the gospel of God. Of which he says, God promised this gospel beforehand through the prophets and the holy scriptures. This is not new. This is something God had promised long ago. And this gospel concerns God's son, who, according to the flesh, descended from David, who was declared to be the son of God in power by the Holy Spirit at his resurrection. He is Jesus Christ, our Lord. Paul told the Roman Christians that he desired to come and be with them. He was thankful for them. He said, and I come, I'd long to come to be with you, but Gospel ministry and the work to which I've been called has hindered me from doing so up to now. I want to come and be with you so that we might be mutually encouraged in one another's faith, yours and mine. And then he says, as he finishes his greeting, that he's eager to come and preach the gospel to the saints in Rome. Then Paul, in verses 16 and 17 of chapter 1, gives us effectively his thesis statement for the letter. He says he's not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, both to the Jew and to the Greek, to the Jew and to the Gentile. 
For the gospel reveals a righteousness that God gives to sinners, which is entirely of faith. This is the only righteousness available to mankind in the sight of God. It is righteousness that God would give to sinners that they receive by faith. And then Paul sets out to prove that that is, in fact, the case. So beginning in verse 18 of chapter 1, Paul begins to teach the saints in Rome. He's teaching us as well. Beginning in verse 18 of chapter 1, he builds an argument that you know well by now does not conclude until chapter 3 and verse 20. And in this section of the letter, two chapters long, Paul demonstrates beyond question that all men are under sin. This is so that it might be shown beyond question that if human beings are to be justified, declared just by God, it cannot be through a righteousness of their own, but only through the righteousness given by God that is revealed in the gospel. Paul begins by talking about the nations and how the wrath of God is revealed against fallen mankind. Human beings in our corruption suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Rather than worshiping God, we look down to earth and worship the creation and worship ourselves. We are, all of us, accountable and without excuse before God because the creation itself testifies about him. And the law that he has written into creation does as well. The evidence that God has given humanity over to wrath, the fact that wrath is revealed against mankind is that we have been given over to every kind of sin and debauchery, sexual immorality of every kind, as well as things like this, envy and murder and strife and deceit, gossiping, slandering, insolence, haughtiness, disobedience to parents, foolishness, being without faith, being heartless and ruthless. And it's so bad that not only do we do all of these things, we actually condone and celebrate the practicing of wickedness. Paul then turns his attention more toward the Jews. He says, you too are without excuse because you judge people who practice those things that I just outlined, but you do the very same things yourself. You judge other people for doing things that you also practice. How do you think it's going to go for you when you face the judgment of God? You don't let other people escape your judgment. Do you think that you could stand before a heavenly tribunal and that go well? Do you not know that God's patience and kindness are meant to lead us to repentance? But as it stands, you are unrepentant. You're blind to your guilt. You think that you've rendered unto God that which he would accept. You think that other people will face God's wrath for what they do, but that you will not face God's wrath for what you do. In reality, because of this unrepentance, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of judgment because God is a righteous judge. He's impartial. He's always just. He shows no favoritism. He will reward those who do good with eternal life, and he'll punish those who do evil with wrath and condemnation. 
And it is not those who simply hear the law who would ever be justified in God's sight. It is those who do what the law requires. All men, Jew and Gentile alike, will either be rendered righteous as a law keeper or unrighteous as a law breaker. Paul then goes in even more specifically regarding the law and the Jewish people in particular. Paul says, you call yourself a Jew, you rely on the law, but you haven't kept it. You appeal to the law, but you have not attained righteousness under it. You boast in the law, and in fact, you dishonor God by breaking God's law. He then mentions circumcision, this great sign that God had given to the people of Israel. And he says, look, circumcision would indeed be of value for you if you kept the law. But if you don't keep the law, your circumcision is of no value. Because the circumcision that matters to God is an inward reality. It's a matter of obedience to the law. It's a matter of righteousness at the spiritual level, not at the level of the flesh. Then Paul anticipates some objections, particularly from his Jewish opponents. Okay, Paul, if that's true that the law, having the law and circumcision doesn't justify a person in God's sight, what advantage has the Jewish person then? To which he says, much in every way. To begin with, the Jewish people were entrusted with the oracles of God, the scriptures. And the value of the scripture, saints, is that they bear witness about God's Christ, the plan of God from all time to save a people. What if, though, many Jewish people did not believe the promises of God realized in Messiah? Does that nullify the faithfulness of God? To which Paul says, no way. Let God be true, though every man were a liar. God is faithful and upright in all that he does. Human unbelief is only attributable to human corruption and deceitfulness. Then there were some of Paul's opponents who were effectively saying that, well, in our unrighteousness, God's righteousness is exalted. In our wickedness, God is made to look more holy. So maybe God's wrong for judging us in the first place. To which Paul says, by no means. For how could God judge the world? God is the judge of the world. He always does what's right. He is rightly opposed to evil. And then Paul turns the arguments of his opponents on their own heads by saying, look, you condemn me as a sinner because of the doctrine I teach. If I'm wrong and I'm lying, then according to your logic, my lie would glorify God. So what's the problem? And then he mentions how the apostles are slandered with teaching that people should just sin so that good might come out of it. And he dismisses that out of hand. And then beginning in verse 9 of chapter 3, he pulls it all together. All men, Jew and Gentile alike, are under sin. And he cites some scripture. He quotes the Psalms and Proverbs and Isaiah. There's no one righteous, not even one person. No one understands, no one seeks for God. It is true that God will reward those who seek him, 
The problem is nobody does that. All have turned aside. Together they become worthless. No one does good, not even one. God will reward those who do good. Problem is nobody does good. When it comes to how we speak, we tear other people to pieces with our words. When it comes to what we do, we are swift to destroy others. We do not know peace, and we don't fear God, which is what led him to drive all of this down on a wedge and say these words. Now we know that whatever the law says, the law of God, whatever it says, it says to those who are under it so that every mouth may be shut and the whole world held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no flesh, no human being will be justified in God's sight since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Put your eyes on verse 21 of Romans 3. It doesn't get better than this, beloved. Hear now the word of God. But now, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. I have three points for our consideration. I'll give, us, give them to you, excuse me, one at a time. Number one, a righteousness apart from the law. Point one, a righteousness apart from the law. So we cannot earn righteousness through the law. Paul has been very clear. We will not be found righteous through our obedience to God's law. If a man says that he can keep the law, that is evidence that he does not know what the law is. As Charles Spurgeon said, if a man fancies that he can ever climb to heaven up the quivering sides of Sinai, surely he can never have seen that burning mountain at all. As has been said, when we talk about the law, we break it. And while we pretend we can fulfill its letter, we violate its spirit. Think back to the covenant that God made with Adam. How God required of Adam comprehensive obedience to the law that he had written into creation and also gave Adam specific commands and had Adam obeyed, the promise of blessedness and life was held out to him as signified by the tree of life in the Garden of Eden. The blessings of that covenant were contingent on Adam's obedience. They were contingent on his works. Adam had the opportunity to earn, through what he did, eternal blessedness. But he broke that covenant. He did not earn that. In Genesis chapter 3 and verse 24, we read these words. In the aftermath of Adam's sin, speaking of what God did, he drove out the man 
And at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim, that's an angel, angels, and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. What's the significance of that? It's that man no longer has access to the tree of life through his obedience. The access that Adam had to the tree of life at one point in time was no more. Access to the tree of life, and when I say that here, eternal life would have to come another way. It would have to come by grace, not works. It would have to come through the promised Redeemer. Friends, we will not find hope in a covenant of works. We will not find hope in the law. The sooner we know this, the better. On the one hand, you may think, well, yeah, brother, we, we know that. We're Christians, right? Like, we know that we don't find hope in the law. But the sooner we get it through our heads and hearts, the sooner we would run to Christ always. The more often we remind one another of this, that we will find no hope in the law, the better. So that we might more often run to Christ the more we feel this, that we will not find hope for righteousness in the law, the better, so that we might run to Christ with a greater sense of our need of him. Let not conscience make you linger, nor of fitness fondly dream. The only fitness he requires is what? To feel your need of him. Come, ye weary, heavy laden, lost and ruined by the fall. If you tarry till you're better, you will never come at all. Point two. If point one was a righteousness apart from the law, point two is the law and the prophets bear witness to it. It being that righteousness. The law and the prophets bear witness to it. That's point two. Track with me. My aim right now is to consider the witness of this entire book, not just the New Testament part, because there are many people to their own detriment who do not realize and see that what Paul writes about in Romans 3, 21 and 22 has always been God's plan. He has revealed this from the beginning. And we will be greatly helped to see that nothing has changed when it comes to God's plan of redemption. It is not as though God has started one way and that failed, and so now we're going to flip the script and try something else. God has not changed the rules when we work our way from the Old Testament to the New. God is not double-minded. It's helpful that we would track with his word. The righteousness of God has now been manifested apart from the law, but the law, that's Moses, and the prophets bear witness to it. The Old Testament scriptures do. 
In Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15, we read these words. This is immediately after Adam falling into sin. God says to the serpent, to the evil one who has manifested himself as a snake in the garden, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Question. Those words from God, was that a command for Adam and Eve to do something? You can participate. No, it wasn't. Was that a commission for them to deliver themselves? No, thank you. Was that a command for obedience followed by a threat of death if they disobeyed? No. Was it a commission to do better the next time? No. Well, what was it then? It was the promise of what God would do. It was the promise of the Redeemer who would come to save his people. It was a promise to be believed, to be received. We move on in the biblical witness, and we read of a man named Noah and an ark that he built, and he and his family are preserved in the ark from the judgment of God as they are brought safely through water. And God promises to sustain the creation. He does that in large measure so that the Redeemer could come who would accomplish salvation. We read of the Passover as God's people are enslaved in Egypt, and God is going to work a mighty deliverance for them. And the last and final plague that he sent upon the Egyptians to accomplish this was the death of the firstborn in the entire land. And God told his people that if they were to sacrifice a lamb and eat of a meal and put the blood of that lamb, a spotless lamb, on the doorposts of their houses, that they would be spared from the wrath and judgment of God. When I see the blood, he says, I will pass over you. We read of the law being given and the spectacle that was Mount Sinai. We learn of the sacrificial system that was instituted as well as the priesthood. In all of that, we learn that uncleanness or disease, they put people outside the camp. This was to show how sin separates us from God and God's people. And in order to be restored, there was cleansing that was performed by a priest, a mediator. Animals under the Mosaic law were killed so that unclean people might be purified. This was to teach that the sacrifice of a life was required to atone for sin. There were sacrifices, lambs, sacrificed in the morning and in the evening every day. This was to teach that constant pardon for sin was necessary in order for God to dwell with his people. We read of the Day of Atonement that would occur once a year where there were two different animals. One was a sin offering killed for the sins of God's people. The other was referred to as a scapegoat. The priest, the high priest, would take his hands and place his hands on this animal and impute, count, credit, transfer the sins of Israel to the animal, and that animal would be sent out in the wilderness, away from God's people to die. 
makes us think of the language of the psalmist. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. Sin atoned for and removed. Numbers 21, we read of this episode where the people, as they tended to do like we tend to do, are grumbling against the Lord and against Moses. God sends fiery serpents amongst them. People are getting bitten by these poisonous snakes and they're dying. The people come to Moses and say, we have messed up. We have sinned. Will you please pray, intercede for us that God might deliver us from this? And the Lord said to Moses, make a snake, fashion it out of metal, attach it to a pole, and raise it up. And when anyone is bitten, when he sees that, when he looks to that snake that you have made, he will live. And that's what happened. Causes us to think of the words of Jesus to Nicodemus, the Pharisee where he says verbatim, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of God be lifted up. That whoever believes in him, whoever sees him, might have eternal life. God made a covenant with a man named David where he promised him that I'm gonna raise up offspring after you, David. I will establish your offspring's kingdom. Your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. The Lord said to David's son, Solomon, if you obey me, Solomon, if you keep my statutes and my rules, if you keep my law, I will establish your throne over Israel forever. It will go well But if you disobey Israel, the people will be cut off and they will become a byword among the nations. A son of David, a king, would represent the people under the law. We read Psalm 1 and Psalm 2. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law, he meditates day and night. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Blessed is the man Blessed are all who take refuge in the Son. There's the language of the prophet Isaiah about the servant of the Lord, whom the Lord will choose, in whom the Lord's soul delights. I will put my spirit on him, says God. He will bring forth justice to the nations. When you hear that, he will bring righteousness to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. He will not break a bruised reed. He will not put out 
a smoking flax. He will faithfully bring forth justice. The coastlands wait for his law, for his righteousness. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness, he says to his servant. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, as a light for the nations, to open eyes that are blind, to bring out prisoners from the dungeon and from the prison, those who sit in darkness. The servant says in the prophet Isaiah, The Lord has given me the tongue of those who are taught, that I may know how to sustain with a word him who is weary. Hear the words of Christ in this, right? Morning by morning he awakens. He awakens my ear to hear as those who are taught. The Lord God has opened my ear, and I was not rebellious. I turned not backward. He kept his father's every word. I gave my back to those who strike and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting, but the Lord God helps me. Therefore, I have not been disgraced. Therefore, I have set my face like a flint, and I know that I will not be put to shame. Surely he has borne our griefs, carried our sorrows. He was wounded for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities this servant of the Lord. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his stripes we are healed. We have all turned aside and gone astray and done whatever in the world we want, and the Lord has laid on him our iniquity. This was God's will to crush him in the place of his people. And by his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. We heard words read earlier in the service. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute, here we go, justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell secure, all of God's people. And this is the name by which he will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. Beloved, that mantra, if there's ever a slogan that we should have on our lips all the time, Christ is our righteousness. That's not a New Testament idea. It's a Bible idea. Jeremiah 31, the promise of the new covenant. God says, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the one I made at Sinai that they broke. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and his brother saying, know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. We heard these words earlier too. After we read and learn that the one that God would raise up who is the righteous branch of David, he's going to be called the Lord is our righteousness. But then God adds on to it. David shall never lack a man on the throne of the house of Israel. And the Levitical priests shall never lack a man in my presence to offer sacrifices forever. All of those priests died 
their ministry was limited. Christ is a high priest with an indestructible life, and he continues forever. And therefore, he is always living to intercede. He made sacrifices that were sufficient once and for all time. This is the language of the prophet Ezekiel. I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses and from all your idols I will cleanse you and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. You shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers and you shall be my people, and I will be your God. And I will make them one nation in the land on the mountains of Israel, and one king shall be king over them all, and they shall no longer be two nations, no longer divided into two kingdoms. They shall not defile themselves anymore with their idols and their detestable things or with any of their transgressions, but I will save them from all of the backslidings in which they have sinned and will cleanse them. They shall be my people, and I will be their God. My servant David shall be king over them, and they shall all have one shepherd. They shall walk in my rules and be careful to obey my statutes. They shall dwell in the land that I gave to my servant Jacob where your fathers lived. They and their children and their children's children shall dwell there forever, and David, my servant, shall be their prince forever. I will make a covenant of peace with them. It shall be an everlasting covenant. And I will set them in their land and multiply them and will set my sanctuary in their midst forevermore. My dwelling place will be with them and I will be their God and they will be my people. The nations will know that I am the Lord who sanctifies Israel and my sanctuary is in their midst forevermore. The words of the prophet Micah, this should ring this time of year, but you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah. From you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. And he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they shall dwell secure, for he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. There's the language of the prophet Micah. Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. You will show faithfulness to Jacob and steadfast love to Abraham as you have sworn to our fathers from the days of old. There's the words of the prophet Habakkuk, the righteous shall live by faith. And then there's Zechariah. He has a vision of a man named Joshua, who's a high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, the second person of the Trinity, and Satan is at Joshua's right hand to accuse him. Standing, Joshua is before the angel of the Lord clothed in filthy garments. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, remove the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you 
and I will clothe you with pure vestments. To which the Lord of hosts says, Hear now, O Joshua the high priest, you and your friends who sit before you, for they are men who are assigned. Behold, I will bring my servant the branch. There that is again. For behold, on the stone that I have set before Joshua, I will engrave its inscription, declares the Lord, and I will remove the iniquity of this land in a single day. That day occurred, by the way, 2,000 years ago outside of Jerusalem. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. Point three. Righteousness through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. Righteousness through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. Everything that we've been considering, all of that Bible stuff, is why Jesus says things like this. You search the scriptures thinking that in them you will find eternal life, but it is they that bear witness about me. It's why he says things like, if you believed Moses, you would believe me because he wrote of me. It's why he says on the road to Emmaus, oh foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, the law and the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. And then with his disciples after that, he says to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. To have one's mind to open, or opened to understand the scriptures is to have one's mind open to see Christ in all of them. It has always been God's plan that God the Son would take on flesh and become a human being. And it has always been God's plan that he would then make satisfaction for the sins of his people and would be his people's righteousness. You can write this down. This is not original to me. A good thing for you to reflect on this week that we're going to reflect on right now. Christ is the end of the law for righteousness. Christ is the end of the law for righteousness. When we read words like the righteousness of God, for example, Romans 1.17, or Romans 3.21, Romans 3.22, or we read about the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, we should understand that what that's talking about is the righteousness of Jesus Christ that is given to us, that's credited to our account. Flip over. If you're open in Romans right now, flip over from Romans 3 to Romans chapter 10 very briefly. I want you to see this with me. Romans 10, 3 and 4. You know the context. Paul has said, that the Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness under the law have attained righteousness that is a righteousness by faith. Israel pursued a law that would lead to righteousness could they keep it, but they couldn't keep it. 
He says that the Jews have stumbled over the stumbling stone who is Christ. Paul says in Romans 10, 2, I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. Verse 3, for being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. Well, what's that mean? Verse 4 tells you, for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. To receive and submit to the righteousness of God is to receive Christ's obedience. It's to receive his righteousness under the law that is counted to a sinner. So when we read of the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ, this is how we should understand it. This only makes sense given that Jesus himself is the one who said that he had come to fulfill the law and to fulfill all righteousness. So, may we this morning, as you reflect on the law and on Christ, may we see what Jesus did and then see that it is better than anything that we could ever do. May we consider what Jesus finished and be weary of what we have tried to work for for so long. By the way, that working to try to be righteous, how's that going? Hadn't gone well. We haven't done this work well today or even this week, let alone over a lifetime. May we consider the pure vestments the pure garments that Jesus clothes us in and then let go of the filthy rags that we cling to so tightly. See, as sinners on our own, the law is to be dreaded above all things. On our own, it condemns us. The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law, 1 Corinthians 15. Everyone who is under the law is under a curse, because cursed is everyone who does not do everything that is written in the book of the law. The one who does what the law says will have life through the law, but no son or daughter of Adam has done what the law requires. Yet, we all naturally run to the law for salvation, at least a piece of it. We do, like moths to a flame. We can't help ourselves. We seek life through keeping the law. When it comes to salvation, when it comes to righteousness, the law can't give life. It cannot justify. It can only kill and condemn. Yet, for some reason, we cannot get ourselves away from it. We can't get ourselves away from thinking that our obedience to the law has something to do with our righteousness before the Holy One. We can't help but cling to some piece of legal hope, even when there is no hope whatsoever to cling to. Beloved, may we never prefer Sinai to Calvary. 
May we never think or act or teach or preach as though Moses will do. Moses will not do. Christ will do. Ever since the fall, the Lord has not proposed to us a way of salvation by our works. When Adam sinned, he broke the covenant God made with him. And you realize at that moment, the law was broken. When Adam fell, Adam represented us all, and we sinned in him, and we inherit his corruption. We know this. This means we are born lawbreakers, not law keepers. So do you see? From the jump, the law is already broken. So whatever you and I can do, we cannot repair the damage that's already been done. When it comes to the hope of merit, earning it, that game is over. The law demands perfection. And we have all fallen short of it. This is why we say the law is meant by God to show us our sin and drive us to Christ for salvation. The law is like this. You walk into a room that's either dark or lit very dimly. You look around because you see a little bit. And you think things are clean. think it's in decent order until you turn a bright light on. And then you see how dirty and messed up things really are. Through the law comes knowledge of sin, Romans 3.20. The law was given so that sin might be shown to be sin, and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. Friend, if we are looking to the law for righteousness in any way, we should tremble when the Ten Commandments are read. Much like, you realize, the mountains shook when God gave them in the first place. So too we should shake. If we are looking to the law for righteousness, we should tremble when we read Christ's words from the Sermon on the Mount. You've heard it said, you shall not murder, but I'm telling you that if you've been angry, you're liable to the fires of hell. You've heard it said, don't commit adultery. I'm telling you, if you've lusted after someone, you are liable to judgment. We should tremble. As we rightly consider the law, we see that sin abounds where we thought there was little of it. That where we thought we were rich, we are in fact poor. That where we thought we were well, we are sick in soul. And that where we thought we were righteous, we are devoid of righteousness. It is only Christ who can cleanse and make us fit to stand in the presence of God. Thinking back to Genesis 3.24, which was read in our service earlier, the cherubim and the flaming sword that were to keep man from the tree of life. Many in the room are aware of this through the scriptures, but think with me for just a moment. We see the cherubim and a flaming sword show up elsewhere in the scripture. When the tabernacle is made, and then the temple thereafter, God's presence uniquely dwelt in the temple, but specifically in one place, the Holy of Holies, the most holy place. It's where the Ark of the Covenant resided. 
There was a curtain at the instruction of God that was made and embroidered with something on it that separated that place from the rest of the temple. Only the high priest could go in there once a year on the Day of Atonement. What was embroidered on that curtain was a cherubim, a flaming sword, signifying just like before, you have no access to God on your own. You have no access to mercy and grace and life, blessedness. And when the Lord Jesus Christ was on the cross and laying down his life, upon his death, something happened. That curtain in the temple in Jerusalem was ripped in two from top to bottom, from heaven downward, rendered half, signifying what? That he had brought us back to God. The Lord Jesus Christ has reconciled us to God. We now have access to eat of the tree of life because Jesus earned that right and he gives it to us. He grants the right to eat of the tree of life to everyone who perseveres in trusting in him. It is impossible for us to be saved without righteousness. God demands it if we are to dwell with him. And Jesus came to give us the righteousness that the law demands, but which it cannot bestow and which it cannot produce. What the law could not do for us, Jesus has done. And remember this, he did not come, because sometimes it comes across like this. May it not be so. Jesus did not come to make the law milder. He did not come to lower its standard or to make it possible for our tainted, half-baked obedience to be accepted as some kind of compromise. If anything, he heightened its requirement. Think Matthew 5. Think the rich young man. You say you've kept the law. Prove it. Prove your love to God and neighbor by selling everything you have and giving it to the poor and following me. The law, after all, is holy and just and good. It does not lower its standard as though it had asked too much to begin with. The law demands obedience that is without spot or blemish, that has no flaw or even a whiff of failure. The law demands a righteousness that never omits a duty and never commits a sin. All of this at a spiritual level, not simply at the level of outward compliance which is why it is the greatest news in the world that Jesus has achieved such a righteousness. And he gives it to us. He bids us to come to him in faith. Come to me. All who are weary and heavy laden. With what? The burden of the law. The weight of your sin. Come to me. And I will give you rest for your souls. Come to me and I'll give you righteousness. To that righteousness must we always look. To that righteousness must we always look. In that righteousness must we rest. In that righteousness must we live. In that righteousness must we die. 
In that righteousness must we appear before the judgment seat. And in that righteousness must we stand forever in the presence of a righteous God. Our tendency, though, if we're honest, is to doubt. We know that there is so much we lack. We're plagued in our hearts that we don't have enough to bring. To which we would rightly say, of course we don't. We never had anything to bring to begin with. May we trust that all is really done, that it really is finished, that when Jesus cried those words from the cross, he meant what he said, righteousness fulfilled, atonement and satisfaction for sin made, bodily resurrection, a foregone conclusion. It's finished. May we trust it. The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. What comes right after that? But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exult in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. All glory be to Christ. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we come to you and ask that you would confirm us in the faith in your Son. We pray that we would not look to the law for righteousness, but that we would look to Christ alone who has kept the law for us and who has made satisfaction for our sins. We pray that as we come to your table, as we receive by faith Christ's broken body and his shed blood upon which the new covenant is founded, we pray that we would be strengthened in our souls, that for those who are weary and heavy laden this morning, that we would know rest and peace in our hearts. We anticipate the coming weeks and making our way through the rest of Romans as we will consider the gospel week after week, and we pray even ahead of time, should you give us those Lord's days, that it would be good for our congregation. We pray in Christ's name, amen.